0: Pam come up and share with us. So before she does that, I'm gonna give just a little bit of an introduction so you can know who she is. Pam was born and raised in a Christian home in Houston, Texas. She met her husband, Carrie, and you guys, if you were here for the Essentials Conference, you remember that he came and spoke to us. So that makes it even more of a treat that Pam gets to share with us now. So they were married in 1976. They moved to Los Angeles area in 1990 for Carrie to attend Master's Seminary. And they stayed in California after that for 16 years, ministering in a bunch of different capacities there at Grace Community Church. In 2006, they moved to Winston-Salem, which is where they are living now in North Carolina, where Carrie is actually serving as the senior pastor. Pam was explaining to us how that he was not only preaching the sermon and, and functioning as the senior pastor, but their family also did music for years. Uh, them and their their four kids would do music uh, to lead that. I thought, my goodness, that is a lot of work when you are the senior pastor. So anyways, um, the Hardys do have four adult children. For several years, she taught in the track for wives at the seminary there at Masters. Um, Actually, I guess it was the Shepherds Conference, right? Yeah. And obviously, she loves the word and she loves sharing it with women. And that is exactly why she's here. And we are thrilled to have her. So please come up and share with us.
1: on and believe me i'm still working on all of it it's because it's you know it's because of my study of god's word what i say this weekend will not change you what will change you and help you is your own personal time in god's word as you let the holy spirit teach you and as you meditate on god's word and that's why i give you that scripture um Yvonne has asked me to say just a word about the book in the back, and I told her. It is very uncomfortable for me to say much, but I will say just a few words. Um, The book is based on the lesson I'm going to teach tonight on balance. And I wrote the lesson just because I was looking for balance in my own life. Many years ago, still looking for it, but at that point, I was looking for books on balance for Christian women, and I couldn't find any. There was just nothing out there, and that was when I began to write this lesson. And so eventually, uh, it became a book. Most people in 2020 spent their time cleaning out their garage, which I should have done, but I wrote a book, so it I had extra time. And I will tell you, if you're a busy lady, and the, the book turned out much longer than I intended, But if you don't have a lot of time to read, I will tell you, skip ahead, if you pick up a copy, to chapters 7 and 8. Okay, that is the heart of the book. That is my heart for you. Because it's really written for people that are going through suffering, which is pretty much all of us at one time or another. And it's just speaking to ladies that are going through trials and just telling you how to hold on okay, how to just learn from the Lord, learn from His Word, and He will give you the strength to get through whatever you're encountering. So anyway, that's all I'm going to say about it, okay? I will say this. There's a ton of stuff in the book that I will not at all have time to mention tonight, just a lot of stuff. Um, And in fact, I will tell you to listen fast tonight, okay, because I'm going to be going... Quickly, normally I teach this lesson in two sessions, and I'm going to do it in one, because we wanted to get a lot of stuff in this weekend. So, all right, so that's all I'm going to say. I do want you to also look in your booklet for the praise passage. This is what um, I have started doing for about the last five years, that right before we get into the lesson, I like to read... And you will read out loud with me a praise passage that just focuses our mind on the Lord, on praising him and honoring him. And I think it prepares our hearts. It definitely prepares mine to study his words. So if you would, um, open your booklet. And the first one we're going to look at is First Chronicles 29, verses 10 to 13. So I want you to read with me, starting with verse 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. This was what David said the very last time that he publicly address the nation of Israel. He was basically turning the kingdom over to his son Solomon. And this was what he wanted to leave the Israelites with. And it's just full of praise. So let's go to the Lord and let's just give him our time and we will praise him. Father, we do praise you and we honor you. You are a great, a majestic, a high God. Lord, you tell us that you inhabit eternity, and you are so high above us that sometimes we can hardly conceive of it, and yet, Lord, we praise you because you are also so near to us. Lord, you stoop to comfort us, to raise us up. You are near. You love us. You care about us. You show compassion for us. You have mercy on us, and Father, we just adore you. We love you. We love your word. We thank you so much And just for leaving us your word to instruct us, to teach us, to convict us. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he came and he paid the price for our sin. He took the punishment upon him for us. Lord, we marvel at that. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have sent to us to teach us, to convict us, to comfort us. Lord, you have showed your love to us in so many different ways. I just pray that you would be over this entire weekend, that everything that is said and done would honor you. Lord, I thank you so much for all these women who have taken the time to be here. And Lord, I pray that you would bless them this weekend. Lord, I know that. In a group this size, there are many heartaches, there are many burdens that we are carrying. And Lord, I can't know what they are, but you know everyone. And so I just pray that you would take your precious word and use it this weekend to comfort and to encourage every one of these ladies. Lord, we do love you. And I ask for your help as I teach. I pray that you would guard my words, that I would not say anything that I should not say. Lord, we love you, and we just give you this time in your precious name we pray, amen. Many of you, oh, thank you. Uh, many of you are moms, I know, and what do moms do? We tell our children stories sometimes as we put them to bed, so tonight as we start, I want to tell you story. The date was January the 30th, 1962. The place was the State Farm, I'm sorry, the State Fair Coliseum in Detroit, Michigan, where the Ringling Brothers Circus was featuring the high wire act of the legendary Walinda family, or the Flying Walindas, as they had come to be known. Led by the patriarch of the family, a German man, man named Carl Wallenda, they were without question the greatest tightwire walkers in all of circus history. That night in Detroit, they were once again preparing to perform their most famous stunt, the amazing three-level pyramid. This trick consisted of four men standing in a line on the wire, yoked together by shoulder bars. On top of the shoulder bars stood two more performers, who in turn supported a woman who first sat in and then impossibly stood on top of a chair that was on the third level. The Walendas never used a safety net, thinking that it gave them a false sense of security and bred carelessness in their performers. They had done this dangerous stunt for 14 years, performing it successfully hundreds of times. But tonight would be different. They carefully formed the pyramid and began to move out across the wire. But then the unthinkable happened. The first man on the wire, a young man named Dieter, lost his balance and fell, pulling the two men immediately behind him, down with him, leaving one man standing alone on the wire. Carl, the patriarch, and his brother fell to the wire from the second level, with Carl suffering a cracked pelvis in the fall. The girl, who was on the top, on the third level, who was Dieter's younger sister, fell on top of Carl, and even though he was in great pain, he held her by one arm until a net could be brought beneath her. Of the three men that fell, Carl's son was paralyzed for the rest of his life. The other two men, Carl's young nephew, Dieter, and his son-in-law, Richard, plunged to their deaths on the arena floor as 7,000 people watched in horror. Ladies, balance is a crucial skill. When we lose our balance in some area of our lives, the results may not be quite as dramatic as they were for the Walendas that night, but they can be just as devastating, not only for us, but for all the people around us. So tonight what we're going to discuss are some common areas of life where we are tempted to go to the extreme and be unbalanced. Sometimes I feel like I'm a giant pendulum in a clock, and I'm over here on some issue, could be many things, and I realize I'm kind of out of balance, okay, and so I begin to swing back but i don't stop in the middle many times what do we do we keep right on going and we end up going over here and going to the extreme over here and we're out of balance again and believe me i am not telling you that i have found the perfect balance in any of these areas i am right there with you i am working all the time striving to have a balanced life I'm always kind of reevaluating my life. Okay, am I putting too much time, too much effort here? And maybe ignoring something over here that's actually much more important. We find an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is the chapter where Paul is comparing the Christian life to a race. And we find this in verse 25 in 1 Corinthians 9 says, and everyone who competes for the prize of this Christian life is temperate in all things. Now, that temperate word is kind of an old-fashioned word, but when you look up what that means, temperate means moderate, self-controlled in action or speech, balanced, okay? So Paul was encouraging us here to be balanced. Now, I do want to tell you as we begin the lesson that it is okay to be unbalanced in one area of life, okay? In fact, you should be unbalanced here, and that is in your personal love and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Your love for Christ should know no limits and no bounds In Deuteronomy 6-5, the children of Israel were given that great command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. You go to the Psalms and listen to David and the other psalmists. Psalm 9-1 says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Psalm 73, Asaph says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none, nothing on earth I desire more than you. Uh, We go to Jeremiah 29. You hear God speaking to the Israelites, and he says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all, with all your heart. We go to the New Testament. What does the Apostle Paul say? Philippians 1, he says, For me to live is Christ. That's it. My living is all about Christ. Philippians 3, he says, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Then we have that great doxology in Romans 11 where it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now all those scriptures, that doesn't sound very balanced, does it? It sounds pretty extreme. But all through the Bible, the scriptures confirm that we must be passionate about our relationship with God. Our problem, ladies, is not that we love him too much. Our problem is that we love him far too little. Do everything that you know to stoke fires of your love for the Lord. Read his word. Study his word. Memorize it. Listen to good preaching and teaching. Read good books. Worship him. Praise him. Continually be focusing on the character and the majesty of Almighty God. In this one area, it is perfectly right to be consumed with wanting to know and to love God. But in virtually every other area of life, the call is for self-control and balance. So what we're going to do very quickly tonight is examine some major categories of life where we have a tendency to go to the extreme. It's not an exhaustive list, but I have tried to talk touch on most of the major issues that we will deal with at one time or another. And as you go, we go through this discussion, I think you will realize that many of the counseling issues that people come in and talk to their pastor about, many times it is nothing more than the fact that they have gotten out of balance. They've gone to the extreme on something and it is causing problems in their lives and usually in the lives of the people that are closest to them so what we're going to do is we go through these areas we will look at hopefully what the biblical balance is what is the balance presented in scripture and then we will talk about what are the symptoms when you get off balance what does it look like practically in your life when you get off balance I am an old nurse, a very, very old nurse, so we're thinking medically here. Okay, we're gonna do a little self-diagnosis, and again, look at the possible symptoms that will crop up in our lives when we've gotten out of balance. The first category I address is something that is very important for Christian wives and mothers, um, and for single people. This applies to everybody, whether you're married or not. It's mainly When you are involved in ministry, there is a balance between family and ministry. And for me, perhaps because I'm a pastor's wife, this has always been one of my biggest issues. So it may be for you too. So we will call this the balance between family and ministry. Both family and ministry are wonderful blessings from God. And as a believer, if you know Christ, you have obligations in both. Specifically, if you are a wife or mother, the Bible tells us many places about our responsibilities to our husband and to our children. If you're a mother, you know those scriptures, Titus 2, 1 Timothy 5, that tells us to love our husbands, love our children, be keepers at home. Manage the house. Uh, think about the Proverbs 31 woman. It says she watches over the ways of her household. She had many responsibilities. But if you're a member of the body of Christ, you also have a ministry to other people in your church. Um, in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, we're told about the spiritual gifts that all of us have t- that are to be used in the service of other people in the body. Um, we have many of what we call the one another's in Scripture. We're told to love one another, to forgive, to exhort, to edify, to admonish, to restore one another. You cannot do those things if you are not involved in other people's lives. And again, if if you're single, if you're not married, you too have you have parents, you have siblings, you have. Um, other family obligations, and so this applies to you too. You still need to prioritize your family responsibilities with your ministry. So, in summary, the Bible clearly validates the importance of both family and ministry. The problem is both require a lot of time, and there are only 24 hours in a day, and so we have to make choices. And finding that right balance between the two is sometimes very difficult. We go to the word of God to find the right order of our priorities and here's what we find. First as we just talked about, scripture clearly teaches that we never put anything or anyone above our relationship with God. That has to be above all else. And that includes our family. But when we come down to the horizontal realm, okay, our earthly relationships, scripture gives a very definite order. If you are married after your relationship with the Lord, the husband-wife relationship is the priority human relationship. That's clearly taught in scripture. Um, Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they will become one flesh. This verse in Genesis testifies to the uniqueness of the marriage relationship. I am not one flesh with anyone else in the body of Christ. I am not one flesh with my children. I am only said to be one flesh with my husband. We also go to Ephesians 5. This is where the relationship between the husband and wife is said to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And again, that picture is not applied to any other relationship except the husband and wife. Now, where do our children come in in this picture? First Timothy three tells us that an elder must be one who rules his house well, having his children in submission with all reverence for how can he lead in the church if he can't lead his own family. So that tells us an elder is to have his house in order. Now, I understand not every husband is an elder, but an elder is the example. He is to be an example for the rest of the church. And so this tells us that our relationship with our children is significant. So here is the point. Scripture absolutely acknowledges the importance of the family, and so we must be very careful never to put ministry to others in the church above ministry to our own families. If you are neglecting your God-given responsibilities in the family, there is a good probability that eventually you won't have your house in order. I do wanna remind you of this, and this is important. Don't get confused and equate your vertical relationship with God with horizontal outside ministry to other people that is not the same thing okay there may be times in life when we are completely committed to the Lord and that relationship is in order and yet the wisest thing that we can do for our families is to step back a little bit in our ministry duties but much too often what I have seen not only in my own life, but in many other uh, lives too, is that people get so busy in outside ministry that it begins to take a toll on the family. So here's the bottom line. Especially if you have children, they must know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are a priority in your life, okay? You need to love the people in your church. You need to minister to them. You need to be involved in their lives. But your children must know that, again, they are before those people at the church. They they are the children, especially if you're a mom, that God gave you. He didn't give them to anybody else. And we just have to make sure that we're not so busy with everyone else that you possibly neglect to give your own children. The time that they need never sacrifice your long-term relationship with your children for relationships that unfortunately are often short-term people are in our lives for a while and then they move and circumstances change and they're not there i mean many of the people in my life right now will not be there in 10 years but my children will be there now again we're talking about balanced. You have to be balanced here. Family is tremendously important, but on the other hand, you have to guard against being unbalanced on the other side. Uh, if you're not careful, you can fall into what I call the us for and no more mindset, where it's, all, it's only and all about your family. Um, it is very easy for parents to become child-centered, and to begin to let their lives just revolve only around their children. There are times when your children will need to sacrifice for the sake of ministry to others, but there are also times when we sacrifice for them. Especially when your children are young, you need to let your children just have you all to themselves without having to compete with other people for their, uh, your attention and the younger they are again the more important that is through the years our children have seen us interact with so many different people but i think if you ask them today they would they would tell you that we would rather be with them than anyone else because they are the children that god gave to our family So all I am saying, the balance here is to make sure you make time as your family is, your children are growing and your family is going through these years, make sure that you do set aside time to be just with your family and no one else. Build the type of family that your children want to be with as they get older. And do remember this, there are different seasons of life. There will be times when you have greater capacity for outside ministry than other times, especially if you have babies and small children, they must be your priority. That's maybe the busiest time of life. But even then, you can still minister. Praying for other people is ministry. That's a great ministry. Even if you've got babies and toddlers running around, Just take five minutes, you know, on Monday morning, call three people in the church and say, how can I pray for you this week? That's a wonderful ministry. Um, A phone call, making a meal for someone. In the season of life with small children, I will encourage you to do this. Focus on ministry that can be done in your home, like making a meal, and doesn't take a lot of time, okay? And when you do minister somehow make sure you get your children involved okay you want to begin to teach them very early that we care about other people that we love the people in our church and you want them to grow up seeing ministry to other people as a natural part of life you know when you make a meal for someone let your children help you okay there are there are age limits to that Uh, One-year-olds are not much help when you're cooking, Um, but as they get older, they are. And so just involve them. I can remember taking meals uh, to people, and I would, especially as the kids got a little older, I would just stay in the car, and I would have them take the meal up to the door. So they got that joy of giving to other people. And as your children get older, again, I'm reassuring you, you will have more time for ministry to others. Over these years, I have been, um, I've always been busy. I grew up in a busy family. My husband grew up busy, so we've always been busy. And at times, we have been too busy, Um, absolutely. I've gotten too busy with outside things, and I can remember times when I had to drastically call, you know, pull back, um, drop things, because we were just too busy. It was taking a toll on the family. You know, along the way, I've discipled a few ladies and not a huge number. And I used to feel really guilty about that. Like, I'm a pastor's wife. I should be, you know, discipling 20 ladies all the time. And finally, the Lord showed me something. And he just said, Pam, you have had four long-term discipleship relationships. My children were my main disciples. And shame on me if I am so busy running around discipling all the ladies in my church. And I don't leave enough time for my main disciples that the Lord gave me, which were my children. So just keep it balanced. If you are too extreme on the family, I've given you the symptoms there. You can be very self-centered, focusing only on the family. You can idolize your children. You won't serve in the church like you should. If you're too heavy on that ministry side, you can neglect your responsibilities, and you can end up with challenges with your family or your children because you just haven't paid enough attention to it. All right? Um, Now, second category. Let's move on to the next area. I call this self-denial and liberty. The Christian life begins with self-denial. Luke 9 tells us to be a disciple is to follow Christ. And to live a holy, godly life, there are many things we say no to. We have to. Uh, We stay away from obvious sin. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says there's even good things that... You know, they're permissible, but they're not edifying. They're not good for me. They're not profitable. So we have to be wise in what we allow ourselves to do and not do. So the, the Christian life is a life of self-denial, but there's a balance in the Bible, and we find that in the book of Galatians. Galatians 5 says we have been called to liberty. Uh, Galatians 5.1 Paul says, stand fast in your liberty. So the Bible also says that we have freedom in Christ. And so what this brings us to is the very tricky issue of Christian liberty. And while we're talking about it, I'm going to give you a quick definition of Christian liberty. And here it is. Christian liberty is the freedom to do what is right without a system of rules, okay? The freedom to do what's right without a system of rules. So do you see the balance here? We have liberty in Christ. We have freedom, but we can't, here's the balance. We cannot ever let our freedom lead us into sin, okay? uh, Galatians 5.13 says we're called to liberty, but it also says don't use your liberty as an opportunity the flesh so you can be extreme on either side you can be extreme on the self-denial side or you can be extreme on the liberty side if you are really extreme on the self-denial here are the symptoms you first thing will become self-righteous and when people i mean they we get kind of proud of all those things we're denying ourselves And that leads inevitably to judging other people by those rules that we have put in place in our own lives that tell us we're righteous. Um, This, ladies, is what we call legalism. Now, legalism in the Bible is almost always referring to salvation, to the fact that we cannot earn our salvation with our good works. But today, when we are just talking and we say someone is legalistic, we are not usually referring to salvation, we're referring to sanctification. Sanctification is how we live and how we grow as Christians, how we grow to be more like Christ. And in this lesson, I am talking about legalism as it refers to our sanctification. Another word for legalism is the term works righteousness And again, this is the mistaken belief that we become more righteous in God's sight because of what we do and don't do. Now, we need standards, absolutely. We need to live holy lives. And those things, there are things in our lives, sin and other things, that we need to be very careful about. We need to deny ourselves. But just remember, those things don't make us more accepted by God. A works righteousness approach to sanctification is a skewed approach that seeks to grow by focusing on the externals and not the heart. Our self-denial and our good works did not save us and after salvation they do not make us more acceptable to God. When we put our faith in what Christ did for us on the cross, he gives us his righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own, and we never will. And this is where the gospel comes in. It is so crucial to, as they say, preach the gospel to yourself all the time. When we constantly remember Christ and what he did for us on the cross, we are motivated to obedience, to good works, And it's not just out of duty or obligation. It is motivated by our love for Christ, just gratitude for what he did for us. Too often as Christians, we fall into what I call the older brother syndrome. Remember the prodigal son? Um, Remember the prodigal? He was off doing stuff he shouldn't have in the far country, and the older brother stayed home. The older brother was the good one. Okay, the older brother was in church every Sunday with his dad. He was doing what he was supposed to. But as you read that parable, it becomes very clear. The older son didn't have any more love for the father than the prodigal did. Okay? Um, He, yeah, he was very bitter. He did not understand the father's love for him. And so we have to be careful we're not doing that. We're not doing good things to gain favor with the Father. The gospel is the exact opposite of that. If we are truly saved, we are completely accepted in Christ, and therefore we obey out of love and righteousness. We don't do good works to earn God's grace. We do good works because of God's grace, because of God's grace in our lives. The gospel operating daily in our lives is what rescues us from legalism. Now, again, this issue is related to legalism, also is related to what we choose to do and not do in our Christian lives. It's crucial that we learn to distinguish between Biblical issues and what are called preference issues. A biblical issue is something that is clearly encouraged or prohibited in scripture. A preference issue is something that isn't. We get in trouble when we take a preference issue and we treat it and treat other people as if it was a biblical issue. Now, what are some of those? I don't have time to go through all of them. We could have a list of 100. What are some things that are not specifically spelled out in the Bible that we might have different opinions on. Okay, how about, I'm just going to give you a few. How about schooling? What is the right way to school your children? Okay, public, private, homeschooling. Uh, We have done all three. They all have plus and minus. We have done, there were years when we were doing all three at the same time, all right? Churches split over this issue. My husband has counseled with many where literally a church is split over what's the right way to school your children. How about entertainment? Okay, that's a huge area. Okay, can we watch TV? Can we even have a TV? If you have a TV, what can you watch? What is okay to watch? What is not? Movies, same thing. Can you go to a G movie and not a PG? Uh, You know, anyway, lots of different opinions there. Music. Music. Oh, my goodness. How many churches have split over the issue of music? What is the right kind of music? Can you listen to secular music? If you have Christian music, what's right? there? People draw the line many different places. Uh, outward appearance. Can you wear makeup? Can you wear pants? Can you wear, uh, you know, can you do all sorts of things? How long should your hair be? What about tattoos and piercings? Okay, lots of different things there. Uh, another area is politics, okay, and I'm not even going to go there, not not going to say anything else about that. It divides people, believe me. All right, um, let me give you a definition of legalism also, legalism is judging your own spirituality and that of other believers by man-made rules that are not spelled out in Scripture. I'll say it again, judging your own spirituality and that of other Christians by man-made rules not spelled out in scripture. We all have areas of legalism in our lives and usually we don't even realize it. I have known just a handful of people in my life that I would really call legalistic. I mean, they were just consumed by their rules. And, you know, I have one adjective that I would apply to those people that always comes to mind, and that is the word joyless. Okay, those kind of people, again, it's all about the rules, and there's no joy in the Christian life. Um, I've also found those kind of people have great trouble forgiving others. They tend to often hold grudges. You know, the people around them don't measure up don't obey the rules, and they tend to often have trouble forgiving. We don't want to be that. So, uh, and the people that are legalistic judge the other people. If you're, if you're unbalanced on the liberty side, you're too free, okay, uh, the, the danger is sin. You can say, see sinfulness and worldliness cropping up in your lives, and you can really get in trouble there. Uh, you can flaunt your Christian liberty. Uh, And again, it's so funny, they have the same symptom. The free people judge the other camps, both the legalistic and the people that are too free. They're often criticizing the other people. I will say this, when it comes to Christian liberty, every church has the strong and the weak brothers that Romans 14 talks about. We must be ruled by love when we have different convictions. Romans 14 is a great chapter to study. And it's all about love. It's all about showing love to your brothers and sisters. And I will say this, just in this day and time, in this culture, if you have a Christian liberty that you enjoy with a clear conscience before the Lord, but you know it might possibly offend a brother or sister in Christ... I am beseeching you, don't post it on Facebook or Instagram. Don't put it out there on social media. That is not loving. In fact, it's actually very selfish. Especially in today's world when the unity of the church is so under attack. Why would we want to offend a brother or sister in Christ for no good reason, okay? Enjoy your freedoms privately with a clear conscience, but don't flaunt them before other people that may have different convictions, okay? Uh, Convictions, never, if you have somebody in your life that has a conviction that you don't think is biblical, don't encourage them to violate it. That's very dangerous. You don't want a seared conscience. What you do is keep them under the teaching of the word of God. And what I have seen in my life and in others is that when we stay under God's word, our convictions gradually become more biblical, just as we are taught. Um, With your parenting, let me give a word in relation to parenting. Be honest with your children as they're growing up. Don't teach them just to live by a set of rules for behavior. From an early age, teach them To study the Word, to go to the Word, to search for answers about what they do and they don't do. Now, when they're two years old, three years old, of course, you need rules. Uh, We had house rules growing up that just made life a lot simpler for everybody. Of course, there is a place for rules, especially when they're young. But as they grow up, you have to bring biblical truth to bear on the issues they are dealing with. As parents, the hardest thing about that is learning to trust the Holy Spirit. We want to be Holy Spirit in our children's lives, okay? And there comes a point, especially as they get older, you have to trust the Spirit. Um, Just teaching them a bunch of rules, that's the easy way out, okay? Teach them to be in the Word. You don't want them to get out of the house and fall apart because they never learned how to deal with the temptations and the pressures of this world. Um, I heard a Bible teacher in California say this one time, rules without relationship equals rebellion. That's not always true, but many times it is. Build a loving, trusting relationship with your kids as they grow up. All right? Um, All right, let's move on. Patience and confrontation, the next area. This deals with how we respond when we are sinned against by other people. Obviously, we are exhorted in scripture to be patient and long-suffering with one another. And there are times we intentionally choose to overlook offenses, but there are other scriptures, and I've given you many scriptures there, so please look those up. It tells us we have a responsibility to confront sin. And so, we need to find that balance. When do we overlook? When do we confront? And if you're too much on the overlooking all the time, the symptom that you're, you're seeing revealed usually is fear of man. We care too much about what other people think about us, about our reputation. We're scared we'll lose a relationship. And we have to remember that there are times where the most loving thing you can do for someone is tell them the truth. That you're really hurting them when you're not telling them the truth and they are involved in something, they are in some type of sin that is hurting them and hurting other people. It may harm your relationship temporarily, but there are times you just have to pray. The Lord will give you wisdom in that. Um, and our, our guide for that is Galatians 6.1. We go, when it is time to confront someone, you go humbly, you go prayerfully, you go in love and concern for that person. Now, if you're too much on the other side, if you're a confronter, um, the chief danger of that is just becoming a very prideful and judgmental people, a person. You know, I have known people in my life, just a few. See, when you're old like this, you've known a lot of people, so I'm being very honest. (laughs) I've known a few people like this. I think they thought it was their spiritual gift to run around the church and confront everybody on their sin. Okay, I'm sorry, that is not in the list of spiritual gifts, the gift of confrontation. Um, I mean, you don't want people to run when you know, they see you coming, okay? Um, and it's just, yeah, that person is gonna have difficulty in building relationships and friendships, so don't be too heavy on that. I'll give you some advice. Be much more concerned with your own sin than with everybody else's, okay? That, that will keep most of us busy, all right? And it will guard you. All right, fourth category, we've got to hurry. Temporal and eternal. What does temporal mean? It's the things of this earth, uh, just everything about this earth, our earthly responsibilities, um, just everything we have to deal with on earth. What is eternal? Obviously, it's just the eternal things, the spiritual things. Being mindful of temporal things keeps me responsible, it keeps me involved. It reminds me to be grateful for what God has made. God made a beautiful earth here um, in his creation, and we need to love that. We need to appreciate a beautiful sunset, just the beauty he has put here. So there's a time to think about temporal things, but we are also told to be heavenly minded. We must be thinking about eternal, things. We must pour ourselves and our time into the things that are eternal. And there are really very few things in this in this world that are. God, our relationship with God, that is eternal. His word is eternal and other people are eternal. Basically, everything else in this world is one day going to be burned up. So don't waste your time on things that don't matter. Okay, there's certain things we have to do. Obviously, we have to fulfill our responsibilities, but make sure you keep a good balance. If you are too temporal, temporally minded, you will overemphasize worldly success, achievements. You can get very materialistic. You will worry about all those things that you have, worry if they get lost. Um, You can also be excessively preoccupied with things of the earth. Uh, I, I put there temporal issues, temporal causes. I told you I love a beautiful sunset. I love to look at the mountains, and I appreciate God's beauty, but I don't. I don't go around hugging trees, okay? I'm not demonstrating for the baby seals. I mean, they're cute, but I'm not gonna go demo, You know, demonstrate. In California, and I loved California, but there was people, they would be about to cut down a big old tree, and somebody would call, I mean, they would climb up in the tree and live there for two or three months, uh, you know? It's like, okay, I mean, I love that tree, but I'm not gonna live in it for three months. So you can take it too far. Um, you can, you know, I, I see the, all the signs, you know, save the earth, save the planet. Whenever I see those, I just think, good luck. Okay, I've read Revelation. I mean, you are, I don't care what you do, environmentally, you are not going to save the planet. I, you know, I, I, I do recycle, okay, I've got that green thing and I threw, you know, I try and be a good citizen, but I don't take it too far, and some people do. Um, even Christians. You can put too much emphasis on philosophies or ideologies. Again, this is health, exercise, diet, um, schooling, you know, what you do with your schooling, politics. Um, You know, you have to pay some attention to those. Um, Essential oils, okay, essential oils, they're good, but they're not going to save you, and they're not going to save the planet. So. You know, when something, when I pick up from somebody that, okay, I have found the answer, this is the answer, (laughs) that worries me, okay? Nothing is the answer except Christ. And I've seen Christians that get so consumed with this thing, you know, this philosophy, and it's going to pass away someday. So be careful, be balanced. All right, next category, Uh, inner man and outer man. The Bible tells us there we have an inner man, the, the heart, the mind. Those are all terms for it. And we have an outer man, and there is a difference. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 says our outer man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed. First Samuel 16, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outer appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. The inner man is crucial because just as Proverbs 4 tells us, out of the heart come the issues of life. But we also have to pay attention to our outer man. And so I have given you scriptures in your outline about modesty. Um, And believe me, I have a two-hour teaching series on modesty. So I'm just going to hit the high points. We don't have time. We are absolutely told as Christian women to be modest, to watch our appearance. Um, somebody told me, I taught this recently, and they said, you know what, I never hear anyone teach on modesty anymore. I went, you're right, I don't hear it much either, <laughs> so I'm teaching on modesty, okay. When you stand in front of your uh, closet, I want you to ask yourself three questions. Okay, and by the way, you all look lovely tonight. I'm not talking about any of you. These are in all those other churches. Okay, not you, um, but when you're standing there, just ask yourself this. Is it too short? Is it too tight? Is it too low? Okay, I have a, we have a pastor friend, uh, a missionary, and he said, I can use this. He calls it the preposition test. If you can look up it, down it, or through it, don't wear it. Okay? So just be aware of that, ladies. Um, Maybe it's not a very popular um, subject, but we need to put a reasonable amount, you know, of effort into our appearance. Um, You can't go, you don't need to be the other way where you don't do anything. That's not good either. There's nothing spiritual about that you know, looking like an unmade bed. Okay, do a little something. A little, you know, comb your hair, do a little whatever, a little makeup. Um, You know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm telling you, I am scary. And I look in the mirror and, you know, and the older you get, the worse it gets. So I always say, why should I scare my husband? You will boo. Um, But you know, you get up, you take a shower, you wash your hair, put on a little makeup, and it's not so bad. Um, So, I'm not talking about six hours at the gym and, you know, plastic surgery and all that. We just want to be easy on the eyes of others. Um, A lady at our church said this, our character is the picture, our appearance is the frame, our frame should complement the picture, not distract from it. Um, You know, the, the whole thing with modesty, this is really far the men in our lives, our husbands, our sons, our brothers. God created men to be more visual. That's just the way he made them. I mean, in general, there's exceptions. Um, He he made a man to be attracted to the beauty of his wife. Um, That's why the pornography industry is mainly aimed at men because they're, just the visual can be very tempting. And they are tempted everywhere they look in this word. In this world, newspapers, movies, TV, uh, you know, magazines, everywhere. And I am just telling you that they are the men in our lives should be able to come to church on a Sunday and rest. Okay, just have a little break in that relentless temptation that they deal with all the time. And so I think, as their sisters in Christ, that is the least we can do for them is to dress modestly. So here's the balance in this area. Don't pay too much attention to your appearance, but don't pay too little either. If you're married, just do it for your husband. You know, I want to be pleasant to my husband's eyes. Um, yeah, And you should say, well, well, my husband should love me for who I am on the inside. Of course he should. But I will quote my father-in-law, who has been with the Lord for uh, years now. He was a Southern Baptist pastor for 50 years. He loved to say this little saying, and I'm sure you've heard it, every old barn looks better with a fresh coat of paint. Anybody ever heard that? Or is it just, okay, the young people, they haven't heard that. Um, now, I, I have no scripture for that, okay, that's just a little Texas humor, but you get the idea. A little little bit of paint, never hurt. Okay, let's go on. Uh, We're down to that, we're running over, but we're down to the last two. And these are the ones I told you, if you pick up a copy of the book, this is my heart, okay? These were the ones, the chapters that I really wrote for people who are suffering. The first one is called Reality and Hope. There is a balance between reality and hope that is crucial to understand. What is reality? Reality has to do with thinking, evaluation, being realistic, and seeing the true situation. What is hope? Hope is all about faith and believing the best and believing that people can change and things can get better. My husband and I have had a running joke about this. for We've been married 45 years. He says I'm an optimist. He's right. I am. I'm a glass half full person, and I say he's a pessimist. And he goes, no, 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 I am not a pessimist, I am a realist, see? Maybe you have the same thing with your husband. Uh, We will never agree, okay? But he's probably made me more realistic and maybe I've made him more optimistic. We see this balance all through the Bible. All these scriptures that I'm giving you are examples of these balances and you really see it with this one. Uh, Psalm three, this is David running from Absalom. He says, he's hiding in a cave. He says, many are they who rise up against me, you know, and it's going to get worse. These people are trying to, you know, kill me. He's being very realistic. But you look at the end of Psalm 3. He's going, you are a shield about me. I will not be afraid. And so you go, okay, what happened between verse 1 and then the end of the chapter? He understood this balance. He was realistic. He saw it, but he always had hope in his God. Um, Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good. Not all things are good, but they all work together for good. I love 2 Corinthians 4. Paul was talking about just all that they had been through, and Paul went through a great deal of suffering. And he says, he was hard-pressed, but not crushed. Okay? He said he was perplexed, but not in despair. Paul knew this balance between reality and hope Tell me, my favorite well one of my favorite old testament stories is the story of elisha and very quickly um second kings 6 tells the story that back then those armies loved to attack you know each other they were always fighting the syrian army kept attacking israel Elisha, the prophet, God would tell him where they were going to be attacked. He would tell the king of Israel so they were ready. King of Syria gets very upset. He thinks he has a traitor, you know, telling his battle plans. And so he he says, okay, who's the traitor? And they go, oh, no, 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 not one of us. It's that guy, Elisha, over there in Israel. So he says, okay, that's it. I've had it. Go get Elisha. So in the middle of the night, Elisha and his servant are in this town And the servant gets up early and, you know, goes and whatever they did in the morning. He's watering the camels. And he realizes there is an army around the town. And he knows they're after them. So he's scared to death. He runs inside, shaking in his boots. And he goes, alas, my master, what are we going to do? I mean, we're about to die. They're here to kill us. And I love Elisha. Elisha knows God. He knows his God. And he goes, you know, he's calm. He's cool. He said, you know, chill out, it's going to be okay. He said, they that are with us are more than they that are with them. And then he prays, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, open his eyes so he can see. And I love, it says, the Lord opened the eyes of the servant, and he saw that all around them the the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire. See, the Lord had sent his heavenly army, his heavenly host, to protect them. But the servant couldn't see it. He was being realistic. The Syrian army was there too, but he couldn't see what I call the real reality. And the real reality is that God was there too. So here's the balance, ladies. You can call it optimistic realism, or realistic optimism. But I am telling you, no matter how bad your situation is, God is sovereign, God is powerful, God is all wise. He is the heart changer. He is the one who always will bring good out of bad. And there is always hope if you are a child of God. To say there is no hope is actually to attack the character of God because he is the God of hope. So if you are too extreme on the reality side, if that's all you can see, you will become skeptical, cynical, pessimistic. You will become bitter. You can despair. You will get depressed because you're all about that reality and you're not balancing it with the hope that we have in God. You can be too heavy on that hope side. You can be naive. You can be foolishly optimistic. And you can actually refuse to deal with reality. So find that balance. The last area as we close is called striving and trusting. And this is huge. This is the biggest balance of all. And again, when I say striving, understand I'm not talking about salvation. We do not strive to be saved. Salvation is all of God's grace. We're talking about how we live our lives. We're talking about sanctification. And again, there are so many scriptures that illustrate this. I had, I've given you a whole list there, and I had probably three times that many scriptures. So I just kept the best. But uh, for instance, um, Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, that's his part, they labor in vain to build it. In Nehemiah, they were trusting the Lord. Nehemiah, they were building, rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, He was a smart guy. He stationed families with weapons different places on the wall. And so in Nehemiah 4, he's giving them a pep, pep talk and he says, remember the Lord, great and awesome. And oh yeah, if somebody attacks this wall, fight like crazy, okay? Defend this wall. See, there's a balance between our part and God's part. Um, I love Colossians 129. It says, I labor striving according to what his working our part his part so in our sanctification there is a balance there we do everything that we know to do but in the end we trust lord the lord we have to learn to rest in him for the results Uh, mary and martha in luke 10 i think most of us tend to be marthas i know i do and remember when Jesus showed up for dinner? I think she didn't know he was coming. And Martha, it was in what we would call, in Texas, we would call it a tizzy. Okay, she was back there in the kitchen. She was upset, you know, one hand on the microwave and one hand on the oven, and she's trying to get dinner ready. Where's Mary? Mary's out on the front porch listening to Jesus. And the, the less Mary did and the more Martha did, the madder Martha got. And so finally, she can't take it anymore. She goes out there, and the way she talked to Jesus was shocking. I mean, she is talking to the almighty God of the universe. And she basically went out and said, look, Jesus, my sister's being lazy, and you're encouraging her, and, um, you know, I'd like for you to tell her to come back in the kitchen and help me, you know, because I'm about to work myself to death in there. And if you want dinner tonight, you know, I I mean, well, Anyway, it was awful what she said. And Jesus was so kind. He was so gracious. And he just said, Martha, Martha, you're so distracted. You're so concerned with what really doesn't matter. Okay? So we do what we can, but we have to trust him for the results. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon has a famous quote on that where he says, we should be Mary and Martha in one. We should do everything we can, but we must trust the Lord. And he said, we should do much service and much communion at the same time. And we need great grace for this because it's much easier to serve than to commune. Um, Striving and trusting, this applies to parenting. We do everything we can to be good parents. Give it everything you've got. Love your children. Be with your children. Build a strong relationship with your children, but remember that in the end, they belong to the Lord, okay? And so you have to trust him to work in their lives. So ladies, the Christian life is a high-wire endeavor. And as we struggle to balance, there are dangers on either side. You know, in a high-wire performance, what do you see? If you've ever watched a circus act, they have that long bar and it keeps them balanced. Remember, because we sway and when we're trying to balance. We have a balance bar, and that balance bar is the Word of God. Okay, the, the Word keeps us balanced. The Walenda family, I'm going to close with this. Carl, the patriarch, died in 1978 in a fall that wasn't his fault. Um, he has a, a Grandson, great grandson named Nick Walinda. I don't know if you've seen this guy that crosses the uh, Grand Canyon and Times Square. Nick Walinda is his great grandson. But I want to close telling you about Carl's grandson, Tino Walinda. Tino and his family today still continue the family tradition. And in 1980, 1998, Tino took his, his family, his four children, back to Detroit where as an 11-year-old boy, he had watched his father fall to his death. They went back 36 later, thirty-six years later to the same arena and successfully performed the three-level pyramid. And he said, I wanted to show that disaster does not have to end in defeat. Another encouraging thing about Tino is that he boldly professes faith in Jesus Christ. And years ago, he wrote an article in a Christian magazine, and he said this, when I was seven years old, my grandfather, Carl Belinda, put me on a wire two feet off the ground. He taught me all the skills, how to hold my body, how to hold the pole, how to place my feet, but the most important thing that my grandfather ever taught me was that I needed to focus my attention on a point at the other end of the wire. I needed a point to concentrate on to keep me balanced. The ultimate focus of my life is Jesus Christ. The Bible says we must focus our eyes on a fixed point. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. At one time or another, I have taken each of my four children on my shoulders as I've walked across the wire. In those situations, the children cannot do any balancing. I am the one who has to balance and support them. People ask them, aren't you scared? He says, No, they say, and when they've been asked, why aren't you scared, they answer, because that's my daddy. They have confidence in me because I'm their daddy, and I have confidence in my heavenly father. I know he will take me all the way across this chasm of life until I meet him face to face. So my prayer for us tonight for all of us is that as we walk across the chasm of life as tino called it the lord will keep us balanced through his holy word and enable us to live lives that bring glory to him let's close father we thank you for this time of study thank you for your word thank you for your Holy Spirit that teaches us, thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. Lord, we do ask for your help in this area of balance. Help us be wise. Help us to study your word and help us to live lives that bring glory to you. In your precious name.